Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. We're talking about opportunity knocks and... Uh, you know, I was going to tell some knock-knock jokes, but I couldn't really think of any. And so instead, what I decided to do is just to go to the cartoons. You know, I love the comics. I've told you that. I read them uh, probably almost more than almost anything. Uh, but anyway, this is Frank and Ernest. Frank and Ernest, uh, they're not in our paper. Uh, it's one of the bad things about the Gazette, but hopefully they'll improve. Uh Frank and Ernest, if I get their story right, are two homeless guys who are great philosophers. They know life. You know, they they don't have a dime to their name, but they could solve all of the world's problems. So this is Frank and Ernest talking to each other. Opportunity knocked at my door once, but just to, to ask for directions. That's one of them. Here's another one. Opportunity knocked once. But by the time I switched off the alarm system, removed the safety bar, loosened the guard chain, and unlocked the deadbolt, it had gone. And then here's one last one. These are these are pretty lame, but you better laugh because I think this is the only jokes I got in this thing. Every time opportunity has knocked at my door, it's been with a knock-knock joke. So uh, that one's not too bad. Uh, you know what? Someone else said sometimes opportunity knocks, but most of the time it just sneaks up and then quietly steals away. Okay, you got it, what we're talking about. We're talking about not opportunity that God gives us. So kind of the subtitle to these three sermons that we're doing, today's the last of them, is, is embracing God's best, stepping into God's best. I don't think there's a person here that hasn't had an opportunity present itself, and you just fumbled it. You know, you, you froze, you fought, you fled, something. And, you know, when you look back at a really good opportunity and, and you blew it, that's re- regretful. I mean, there's, there's, that's pretty haunting. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's any of us here today that, that would want to look at opportunity that God gives us and just walk away. We want God's best. And I think the thing that's really cool about our relationship with God is I think God is constantly presenting us with opportunities to experience his blessing, to experience his best. But I think at the same time, we all would recognize that, you know, a lot of times we're not experiencing God's best. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at three different people uh, Solomon and Rehoboam, and now today we're going to look at Jeroboam, who all had the opportunity to experience just incredible blessing from God, and they fumbled it. And so we're kind of looking at these negative examples to see if we can learn something from them because I don't want to do that tomorrow. I don't think you want to do that tomorrow. I don't want to do that next week. I certainly don't want to do it next year. I mean, if God has something for me and he presents a deal, I want to be smart enough to take it. Take it. 
I want to, I want to get rid of the things in my life that are going to keep me from it. So that's kind of how we've been approaching these guys. And like I said, we, we looked at Solomon. And even though Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, probably arguably became one of the most powerful kings that ever lived, laden one of the most successful nations that ever existed. At the end of his life, God made an offer to him and he blew it. He fumbled it. He, he kind of did that thing that a lot of people do in their mid age, middle ages. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's in his fifties somewhere. He's built the temple. He's built the palace. He's, you know, created a nation that's got a, an economy that is humming like crazy. And God said, you think that's good? Let me take you to the next level. And he fumbled it. And the end of his years were pretty pathetic from a spiritual standpoint. His son Rehoboam had the opportunity to take over the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth, and he blew it. Well, today we're going to look at Jeroboam. So we've been following this story that is in 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings 11. If you want to pull it up on your phone, uh, you, if you can pick the translation, I'm using New American Standard. That might make it a little easier to, to follow along. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, here's the story. Solomon was at the end of his life. He made the, God made this offer to Solomon that, that, you know, if you will stay faithful to me, if you walk into integrity, I'm going to make your, your name great like David, your father's name. Well, Solomon didn't do it. And so God pronounced judgment upon Solomon and said, you know what? Not in your lifetime, but in your son's lifetime, I'm going to rip five-sixths of the nation away from you. There's 12 tribes of of Israel, 12 family groups that comprised that nation. Ten of those family groups are going to revolt and bolt. I'm going to rip them away. And who did God say that he was going to give them to? One of David, uh, one of Solomon's lieutenants named Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam, I mean, he was, he was not royalty. He didn't come from the academic world. He wasn't intelligentsia. He, I mean, he, he was the son of a widow which meant he grew up poor, probably hand-to-mouth type existence. The only thing Jeroboam was really good at is he evidently had a lot of natural skill and he was a pretty good warrior and an excellent manager. And God told Jeroboam, I'm going to give you the nation. And the word got out that God was going to give Jeroboam the nation. And what does Solomon do? Solomon drives him out of town. And Jeroboam goes down to Egypt, stays there for a long time until he finds out that Solomon's dead. He comes back, but he's, he's not really expecting the nation to fall into his lap at all because he's just this poor kid that knew how to use a sword. He was just this poor kid that, that was actually pretty good at doing stuff, but he wasn't royalty. He wasn't the, the child of the 
smart people like Rehoboam and all of his friends. He was just Jeroboam. Well, the story we looked at last week in chapter uh, 12, or in, in chapter, yeah, in chapter 12, tells about how Rehoboam fumbled the opportunity he had and God gave the nation to Jeroboam. Now, God had given Jeroboam a heads up of what's going to happen. So look at 1 Kings 11, verse 38. Okay, it's really long. I would love for you to read this sometime. If you want some really interesting Bible reading, this section is really fascinating, okay? And it's a little hard, so you got to read it a little slower and maybe keep up with all these names because you got Rehoboam and Jeroboam and others and stuff going on. But if you catch the drift, I mean, there's some fascinating stuff going on here. But the bottom line is God is telling Jeroboam, I'm going to give you this nation. You may be the son of a widow. You might be from the wrong side of the tracks. But I'm going to give you this nation. And look at verse 38 of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38. Then it will be, this is God talking to Jeroboam before he ever, you know, gets the kingdom at all. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and I will build you, Jeroboam, into an enduring house, dynasty, as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. That's the opportunity. Now get this, okay? Because we read that and it's kind of, jumbled and we, we have a hard time tracking with it, but this is significant. I mean, who's the greatest king that Israel ever had? David. When Jesus Christ came along, what was his number one credential? He's the son of David. He was a direct descendant of David. David was it. I mean, that was the Mount Everest as far as Israel was concerned of their kings. So look at verse 38, particularly the second half of it. What is God promising or offering to this young man, Jeroboam, who was from the other side of the tracks, didn't have any kind of pedigree at all? He said, I will make you as great as David. I mean... I'm going to build, I will build you, Jeroboam, into an enduring dynasty. I'll take your house and make it last forever. Now, you, you know, if you really know the Bible and stuff, you're sitting and thinking, now, how in the world would that work? Well, the Messiah, Jesus, would still would have come from David, but somehow God is, is making an offer to Jeroboam here that is huge would somehow their lines eventually come together or would there be just two nations 
Israel and Judah that would endure forever? I don't know. Because it didn't happen. But it could have happened. That was the offer. That's the opportunity that God offered Jeroboam. Now, it was conditional. See the verse? If you'll listen to all that I say, if you'll walk in my ways, if you'll obey my statutes, follow my commandments, if you'll do that, I'll give this to you. I mean, I am asking you to believe me, to trust me enough to obey me. Trust and obey. And if you'll do that, Jeroboam, I will make you like David. That's quite an opportunity. What's he do with it? Okay, fast forward. Go to chapter 12, verse 25. So what goes on is Solomon dies. All Israel comes together. They're going to make Jeroboam. Rehoboam the king. Rehoboam, remember last week we saw it. They said, hey, Rehoboam, we want you to be king, but we need the taxes to be reduced. We need to not be involved in so many public works projects. I mean, we built the temple. We built the palace. We you know, got the economy humming. We need just to kind of coast for a while. And the old men who had been Solomon's advisors, they said, that's a good idea. This is a time for some tax relief. The young guy said, no, nothing doing. Man, raise the taxes. Go even harder. Tell the people you're... They thought Solomon was tough. You'll be even tougher. What happens? Like we saw last week, they reject Rehoboam. And of all people, who do they pick to be their leader? Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, here's this young guy who's been out of the country for a few years. If, if he has any kind of, you know, spiritual inclination, he's got to sit and say, my goodness, this is happening just like God told me three, four years ago. God told me he was going to give me the kingdom. And Shazam's, I got the kingdom. Ten out of the 12 families want me to be the king. And they now are following me as their king. And so what, is, what does Jeroboam do with this incredible opportunity that God gave him? And it's not just the opportunity to be the king over 10 of the 12 families. It is the opportunity to become like David, the king of kings, the one whose house is going to last forever. And God, by the way, told me my house would be enduring forever. What does he do with it? He blows it. And if you will take the time to read between verses 25 down to verse 33, you will find some fascinating stuff going on here of how Jeroboam blew it. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it. Let me tell you what he did. 
he forgot who God gave him gave the gave him the shot. It's like he, it's like he he was oblivious to the fact that God had already predicted this three four years earlier. And the second thing he did was he felt compelled to figure out how he could earn it and make it happen. It's like he got this little opportunity. It's like, oh my goodness, I've got, I've got to capitalize on this thing. And he sinned in some big, big way. And his sin became the benchmark of major sin. His sin became the benchmark of major sin of which every king that followed, they were measured against this sin. Remember, if, if, if you ever read through the book of 1 Kings here, and I know I'm getting, being real technical and asking it to, to, to think here a lot, but, but here's the deal. When you read from 1 Kings on, from this part on, every king is going to be measured. Did he continue in the sins of Jeroboam? Or did he forsake the sins of Jeroboam? Was he like Jeroboam or was he not like Jeroboam? Because Jeroboam, instead of stepping up to what God called him to do, he plummeted into some major sin. What was that major sin if we were to take the time to look at that passage in, in a little bit more detail. Let me tell you what he did here. He did four things. The first thing he did was he started to proclaim an inaccurate view of God. He's got this kingdom, and he said, okay, if these people keep going to Jerusalem and worshiping God like they've been doing under Solomon, eventually they're going to revert back to Solomon's family. They're going to go with Rehoboam. I'm going to be voted out of office next election cycle. So he started to figure out, he started to mess with the worship, if you will. And the first thing he does is in Dan, which is way up north, and Bethel, which is about in the middle of the country, but north of Jerusalem still. He says, let's make two golden calves and we'll say they represent God, two idols. And so look what it says here. Verse 28, so the king consulted. It's like he went and got some advice and the advice he got was, well, the first thing you should do is make two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. Here they are. It's these two golden calves. Now, it wasn't that he wasn't saying that the one true God brought him up out of Egypt. He was just saying, here's what God looks like. I mean, that, that, that kind of always bugged people. You know, remember that in the Ten Commandments? No idols, no images, no graven images. Thou shalt make no graven image. Why didn't God want any images of himself? Because as soon as you make an image of God, you're basically limiting him. Oh, this is God, so this is not God. It's like you've created a box and God fits in it. 
And as long as you can fit God into a box, you can limit his input into your life. And so what Jeroboam did was he started basically defining God as these two golden calves represented. That was a pretty good image. You know, we look at it, and it's like you made God into a cow. We think about it, in that day, those golden calves, gold, it's one thing, but a calf, I mean, that was, that was the strongest piece of, of machinery you could have. I mean, when those things grow up, they pull the plows. They're, they're, they produce, I mean, my money is made on the backs, literally, of those cows. This bull is powerful. And my God's like a big bull. He's a golden calf. Well, as big as that was in their imagination, that still wasn't good enough. So Jeroboam limited God into the space of just being a just a gold calf, a gold bull. You know what else he started doing? He started producing a more user-friendly worship. Go back to it here. Verse 28, so the king consulted people and, and they decided to make two golden calves. And he said to them, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now, why Bethel and why Dan? Okay, you're going to have to kind of imagine this a little bit. But think back to our Civil War, you know, 100 and, what, 160 years ago. If the South, let's say the South had won the war, Okay. If Washington, D.C. remained the capital, eventually the South would have rejoined the North because you're going to Washington, D.C. What did they have to do to try to be successful, the South? They had to establish a new capital. So where did they establish that new capital? About 100 miles south of D.C. in Richmond, Virginia. And so when people went to the capital, instead of going all the way to Washington, D.C., they just had to go to Richmond. Well, let's say they got really smart and they said, well, we're going to have a capital in Richmond. We'll also have a capital in, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia, or Little Rock. And so now instead of going all the way to Washington, D.C. to do your business. You can just go to Richmond, or if you're really in the South, you can just go to Little Rock or over to Atlanta. Is it, I mean, it's too much for you to do that stuff that the book of Leviticus says where you have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And so what he did was he put one of the calves in Dan which was way up north, and then he put another one in Bethel, which was just above Jerusalem. I mean, you could get to Jerusalem, 
if you kept going another 10 miles, but boy, let's just stop here in Bethel. And what did it do? It's like now, you know, those three-day festivals that the book of Leviticus called us to, we can get it done in an hour and a half or in a day and a half. It doesn't take as much money. You don't have to stay in a hotel as often. It's not as much sacrifice. All this to say it was just a little bit more user-friendly worship experience that he was offering to people. You know what else he did? Look at this. You know, this whole thing about only Levites can be priests, I mean, that just kind of rubs against you. I mean, what if you feel called by God to be a priest? You know, and God said, no, only the Levites could be priests. So what he said was, let's just open up the doors and anyone and everyone could be a priest. Look at it, it's, uh, verse 30. Now this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship uh, the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Now that was a major violation because it was supposed to be the Levites who were going to be the spiritual leaders. Now, yeah, that changes on our side of the cross. But get the deal. The way In the Old Testament, the way you qualified to be a spiritual leader is you were born into the family of Levi. And he totally, he totally put that away. And so all of a sudden, they had all these spiritual leaders that were spiritually unqualified. Now, if you wanted to take this and just kind of start thinking in terms of what's going on today with just these three things, what Jeroboam did 3,000 years ago is not something that is that different than what it seems like tends to happen in our day and age. We really don't like a God that is that intrusive. We like a God that stays in his place, stays in his box, doesn't, doesn't say every square inch of this universe is mine and I should be obeyed in every part. I mean, there are some things that are personal. There are some things in my heart that, that's between me and me. And... The Bible seems to have this, the audacity to have a God who says, no, I am sovereign. And boy, is producing user-friendly worship. I mean, let's see if we can get this thing done as quickly and as painlessly as we can. Because I got a life to live. And so we, we, we just regularly are trying to figure out how to compartmentalize our our worship, our our devotion to God, and our service to God, and kind of keep it limited because I have a life to live, and I don't really want what's going on on Sunday morning to be affecting me on Tuesday morning or Friday morning, and certainly not Saturday morning. And so 
what is going on? We just constantly are limiting, limiting it more and more and more, doing anything and everything we can to make it better for us, when in fact, sometimes we're doing it at the expense of real true devotion to God. Look at this last one. I mean, today, if there's anything that seems to be going on in spiritual leadership, it's like, man, this guy is great, or this woman is so good, so gifted, so whatever. Where do the qualifications for spiritual leadership come from? Well, they actually come from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You know, there's a list there of about 15 different qualifications of this is what a spiritual leader looks like. And many times you look at those and it's like, well, that, that doesn't really match what's going on morally. Oh, man, the guy is, is incredible. I mean, he, he, he could have been the CEO of any organization, but we've made him the CEO of this organization, and it's humming like crazy for Jesus. And no wonder sometimes we see these, these huge things just crater in a road. One more thing that, that Jeroboam did. It's a little technical to explain, but basically he just picked out two dates randomly. Because remember, the Jews, according to Leviticus, they had certain days, like four days on their calendar. You will worship on this day. You will worship on this day. You will worship on this day. You know, starts with Passover and then uh, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread and, and so forth all the way through it. Well, you know, Jeroboam didn't want them doing that stuff because that stuff would have driven them back towards Solomon and Rehoboam. But we got to have something to celebrate. And so he basically just made up some worship times because worship is fun. Worship's enjoyable. If you do it right... It's enjoyable to sing. It's enjoyable to listen to a good speaker. It's enjoyable to get some helpful information. So it's almost like he just started promoting worship just for worship's sake because, you know, the people love a crowd. And it, you get energy from coming together and all being on the same focus, you know, whether it's towards God or whether it's towards just building a, a rec center or something else or a team that we're going to support, you know, you go to a Cowboys game, you go to a Rangers game, and you got, you know, 50, 70,000 people together that all are hoping, you know, our people will produce. And there's an energy that's there. It's almost like that's what he did in the last, if we took the time to unpack these last few things. That's the sin of Jeroboam. You know, what was it he did? He just totally missed with the worship system of God. Their definition of how they even start viewed God all the way down to even why they worshiped in the first place. And all, to go back to the main point, all of that was how he blew his opportunity. Because remember, what, his, what was his opportunity? What was it God offered him? God said, I'll make you like David. I'll make you a dynasty just like David is a dynasty. Now, 
the main thing we've been talking about for the last three weeks, two weeks and then today, we've been asking ourselves, when these opportunities from God come, what is it that gets us? What, what is it that got Solomon? What is it that got Rehoboam? What is it that got Jeroboam? What tripped him up? What kept them from enjoying God's best? In their very first week, we, we saw kind of the, the normal suspects. Because Solomon got all of these. Sex, strength, status, passion, power, prestige. You know, you say it got the same thing going on here with Jeroboam. Okay, he evidently did fine on the sex and passion thing. But boy, he sure bought into the strength and power thing. But probably the thing that I think that is deepest with Jeroboam, Jeroboam, I don't think, understood the grace of God. You say, whoa, you, you are going all over the direction thing today i'm sorry track with me if you can jeroboam felt like he had to earn that kingdom that god said he was going to give him jeroboam felt like he had to figure out how to retain that kingdom that god said would just be his if he would simply trust and obey if he simply would believe and act on his belief system. Just to put it in New Testament terms, you know what I think Jeroboam's problem was? He didn't understand the gospel. He didn't understand how God works with us. See, at the very heart of your relationship with God and my relationship with God, are basically just a few facts. We're sinners who cannot save ourselves. We are people who are bankrupt spiritually. We are dead spiritually. And God, who is rich in grace, said, I want to provide for you a free gift. Salvation through my son. You don't have to earn it. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The main way God relates with us, it's not by works of righteousness that we do to earn it. It's according to his mercy. And all of God's blessings for me, for you, for Rehoboam, for Jeroboam, for Solomon are gifts of grace that God is extending to us. You say, well, no, wait a minute. There was kind of that conditional thing that Solomon had, and Rehoboam had, and Jeroboam had. Yeah, they were supposed to trust and obey. They were supposed to believe and then act out their belief system. But it's a little bit different here with Jeroboam. This guy looked at the opportunity he had, and he didn't realize it was from God. He thought, I've got to figure out how to, how to keep this thing. 
I mean, my goodness. I mean, I just, you know, the cards just laid out. And if I play this right, I'm going to win big. He totally left God out of it. And he started coming up with all kinds of ingenious ways to gain the blessing and to retain the blessing. In other words, you know what he he, he did? He basically, just to stay with the S's, sorry, but he, he was skeptical about God's deal to him. It was basically all performance that he was going after. I mean, a lot of us, that's the way we, we view our relationship with God. It's like, God, what do I need to do to earn my way into your good graces? What do I need to do to get your forgiveness what do I need to, to maintain this, this relationship? And the, at the core of it, we've got to continually remember that it starts and even extends as a free gift of God's grace. We do nothing but receive it. And Jeroboam, he didn't understand that. And here's the question. Do you understand it? Do I understand it? Because how many times do we get ourselves into a situation and we're thinking things are not the way they should be because I'm not, you know, earning it up. I'm not measuring up. It is so, you know, I guess uh, tied to our North American mentality that I've got to earn my way in to God's blessing. I've got to earn my way in to God's good graces. And if I'm not measuring up, I'm not getting it. And you know, it really, that just takes God and reduces him down to a dealer, a broker. And he's not. God said, you know what? You deserve nothing. And I lavish you with every spiritual blessing. And I call you to trust and obey, for there's no other way. I mean, that's the way to true happiness, is that trust and obey. But you know what? I'm giving that to you, not because you earned it. I'm giving that to you, not because you deserve it. I'm giving that to you because I, in love, sent my son to die on the cross for you. Now, I'm certain that, that many of us, not almost all of us, we entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ that way. I can't save myself. And so I'm trusting him. He died on the cross for me. It's by grace, through faith, that I'm saved. It's not of my works. It's not by my works of righteousness that I'm saved. It's God's mercy that saved me. But is that how you've continued to live your life? Or are you on that performance mentality of, of God's always asking me, to do. God's always asking me to perform. Or are you in that point where you're saying, you know what, it is a privilege 
to trust God. It's a privilege to live out my faith. And as God blesses me, I recognize it didn't come from me. It's the gospel. It's the good news. That's how God deals with sinners. I don't think Rehoboam knew that. And he blew his shot. Question I have for you, question I have for me, is do I really know that? Do I know that there is a God who looks at me and has clothed me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he wants to bless me? He wants to give me his, 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 every spiritual blessing. He wants me to experience those things. Is he asking me to earn them? Is he, is, he, is, he, is he trying to to strike a deal with me? Or is he still asking me just to simply in faith receive it? That's how God wants to deal with you. That is this incredible heavenly father who wants to love you. And I think our tendency, because of our depravity, is to constantly take him and reduce him down to being a broker. Where we're just exchanging. And so consequently, we, we never really fully feel forgiven. We never fully feel adequate. We never feel fully right with God. And it's like we're robbed of really and truly enjoying God's blessing. Let's pray. Just before I pray, I want to give you a minute to kind of absorb all that we've talked about today because it's been a lot. But I think the, the, the primary question today is, am I looking at life with a gospel mentality, with a grace-based mentality of seeing myself as totally undeserving and God blessing?